you look at the history of football, it's generally a story of players moving backwards. First, one of the attackers was removed for a defender, and then another, until finally teams were often left playing with just one player up front. And sometimes even he would be a midfielder. But in the mid-1990s, one team went completely against the grain and played with the kind of gung-ho strategy that seemed to come from a completely different time. Through a combination of box office transfers and young English talent, the 1994-95 Tottenham Hotspur become one of the most memorable sides in the history of the Premier League. It had already been a tumultuous few years for Tottenham, and in 1993, club legend Ozzy Ardiles was brought in to try and turn things around and to stabilise the ship, if you like. Neil, even in that 93-94 season where he was first in charge, there was plenty of evidence that Ardiles was going to be an attacking manager. You'd see midfields where the most defensively minded player of the whole lot was Vidi Samways, who's obviously very much a flair player himself. And Spurs only stayed up in the last few games of that season. So that first attempt at steadying the ship under our dealers didn't really work. Um, take us through, if you like, what it was like to live as a Spurs fan, following them in that kind of mad couple of years through Venables and our dealers and just surviving in that game against Oldham and, you know, that chaos of that preceding year or so. I mean, I think... Obviously, the Venables era was 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 pretty successful. I mean, if you think of, if you look at the Spurs team that I was first supporting, you know, you, I, I kind of came on board with kind of David Pleat, um, you know, the Clive Allen forty odd goal season, you know, and then Venables did very very well, you know, obviously an FA Cup win, a team with Paul Gascoigne and Gary Lineker, and Gary Mabber and Eric the Viking. You know, that was a really good team. Paul Stewart, like, so, so you know, I think when the Premier League rolls around, you kind of have quite a lot of, I'd actually say it's not dissimilar to, to what's gone on, you know, with Mourinho and then with Nuno in the sense that you got a bit of um rot, really, that set in with the squad where good players left and the players that replaced them, you know, really weren't very good. or the recruitment was sometimes like really strangely balanced. So for example, like Steve Sedgley and David Howes were basically the same footballer, but we bought both of them and they both, you know, both of them were um, more than adequate defensive midfield players, but they kind of bought both of them at the same time. We had a, a bit of a sort of Gareth Southgate habit of, of buying a load of fullbacks. So we also had quite a lot of young players coming through some of whom looked like they'd, they'd actually, you know, they'd be pretty good. And a lot of them didn't quite make it. So, you know, players like Darren Kasky, like, was a, a real kind of real hopeful. But he, didn't, he never quite made it. Um, some of the signings, like young English signings that we made from other teams, like Jason Dazelle looked like he'd be a superstar at one time. We bought him. He wasn't very good for us. So some like Vinny Samways have been around since the, the Pleat era, you know, so... It was a bit of a strange mix, that 93-94 squad. And you really only had one superstar, and that was Teddy Sheringham. And and even then, you, I mean, at that point of his career, he was very underappreciated, I think, by the majority of football fans. I mean, mo- most of my time at school was spent defending Teddy Sheringham from those people that said he was rubbish, um, despite all the goals that he was scoring. So, yeah, it, it it was a strange squad and a squad, I think, which desperately did need strengthening, particularly given there was this um, points deduction coming for the financial irregularities that had gone on before Sugar took the club over. So there was that cloud hanging over it. Now, I don't know if Ozzy was brought in to 
steady the ship. I don't know because obviously his record at Newcastle wasn't particularly good either. It was more, I think you could more compare it to what Arsenal did with like Arteta recently. Like this guy played for the club. He was really well regarded as a player. Let's let's bring in a former player. And Aziz was replacing former players as well, you see. So, you know, you had this bizarre joint manager thing that they tried with uh, with Livermore um, and Clements, and that didn't really work very well. So uh, one of the things that you mentioned in, in there was the, some of the poor recruitment that had gone on, and Alan Sugar, at the end of that season, is, takes a really strong stance on that, and he decides that they're going to try and buy their way out of trouble in a sense, but not by buying a whole new team, but by adding real statement buys, and it was a real commitment that nothing but the best for Spurs is going to be coming from now on. No more Jason Dezels, I think he said, picking on, unfortunately, on one player. During the early days of the 94 World Cup, Sugar actually had decided that he was going to try and move for, for Diego Maradona, and unfortunately, obviously, that drug test failure scuppered the prospect of Maradona in a Tottenham shirt fairly quickly. Ardiles, for his part, wanted to sign the Brazilian striker Muller, given what happened when he turned up at Everton and immediately walked out when he found out that he had to pay his own tax rather than the club paying it. I think Spurs may have dodged a bullet there. But it's around this time that the the superstar of the German national team, Jurgen Klinsmann, becomes available. And through the summer, there were plenty of English clubs chasing him, like my own Aston Villa and Everton as well. And there was even an angry supporters meeting at Arsenal after the club failed to sign both Klinsmann and the Swedish star, Thomas Brolin. Uh, so I guess some things never change, eh, Maz? And, you know, Arsenal missing out on top players and the supporters being really angry about it sounds, that sounds very familiar to us now. But... You can imagine what it would have been like to have Klinsman playing in an Arsenal shirt that season rather than in a Tottenham one. Uh, don't want him. Horrible. <laughs> I think the fear was when he, I mean, when he signed, it was incredibly exciting. You know, I mean, there's, there's this absurd photo shoot on Sugar's yacht. You know, Sugar sails his yacht to Monaco. It's this kind of, you know, almost reverse Peter Oden Wingy in the car park, isn't it? Like Sugar shows up in his yacht in Monaco. And it, it's it's that kind of like ridiculousness that I think, you know, the early Premier League will just kind of never be topped for. When he signed, I think the fear was like, what happens to Teddy? Teddy had been such a talisman for the team. And I think there was a bit of a worry that, you know, his place would be under threat. But of course, those two played in a two up top with kind of, I mean, if you were going to describe the formation... Not that you could really have called it a formation, actually, but but you had kind of, you know, Klinsman, Sheringham playing as pretty orthodox strikers. Barnby nominally in midfield, but really kind of just behind them, you know, and then Dimitrescu and Anderton on either flank, but playing fairly narrow because Dimitrescu was a 10, really. And, and Anderton, you know, had been used to being the, the two of the wingers that did the cutting in. So... You ended up with this kind of five there. And then Popescu, bless him, was kind of a libero. He, he wasn't a defensive midfield player in the sense that he's going to sit there and uh, and shut the door. He was a kind of, um, <laughs> you know, he was a mini Beckenbau as the kind of player that he was. So if you start him in your back four, he's going to go off wandering. If you start him in your midfield, you know, he's going to get forward. Um, he scores a lovely goal in one of these early games, actually. I think it's against QPR. So you, you basically also end up then with David Howes as your lone midfield player. And then 
your back four just horribly exposed. You know, there's lots of um, lots of times when you just basically got sort of Gary Mavitt with his hands and his hips, like looking uh, looking annoyed, um, <laughs> or like um, we bought Colin Calderwood, and he he would go on to be like a really good footballer for the club actually, but they just they were just really exposed and. The other thing to remember is that Justin Edinburgh was actually, RIP, bless him, was a incredibly enterprising left back. Like he, he was bombing forward a lot. So you'd quite often end up with this shape when we were being counterattacked on with kind of a right back, usually Dean Austin or or um, or Kerslake. Then you'd have your, your centre halves. And, that, and then you'd have like one sort of defensive midfield player kind of halfway up the pitch. And it was that kind of shape that we're being counterattacked in. If you watch the Leicester game, which we lose um, lose three one, all of the goals you you'll see basically there's not enough defenders to actually cut the passing lanes of Leicester's attackers because everyone's up the pitch. So kind of that ended up being the problem. Didn't half make for some excellent games of football though. I mean that's it really. It was always really really exciting. I mean. Popescu was a really fun footballer to watch, you know, in that. And it's exactly what he was. He was playing that libero role, wasn't he, when it was it was very much the vogue in in the mid-90s. He played it really, really well. But, yeah, I mean, you know, it was just, you'll always look back on it and it's like, well, where's the protection? And, you know, are they going to outscore you? And as, as Neil was saying, hey, those those front players were fantastic. I was big big fan of Darren Anderton, big fan of Darren Anderton. He was a brilliant footballer to watch, and you know, obviously, uh, as much as I joke about it, uh, Klinsman was obviously an absolute superstar and a huge huge get for the the Premier League. And you know, at the time, you just had to be there and see that the. I wouldn't say it was fanfare because he. We're talking about the the British media here, so you know, just being German is enough to paint yourself as a bad guy. And you know, he was coming off that infamous semi final for Monaco against Milan, where he got Billy Costa Curtis sent off, and, uh, and I remember a lot of people were like down there, which you know is of course the whole f- famous uh, dive in and the big dive in celebration that would come in. As he did, but you know that that reputation was really that narrative was being pushed very very strongly in the media at the time, and it was he was box office. He was one of those players that you know the media were jumping on, but you, you knew they absolutely loved the, the fact that he was here because he he was such a star and it's there and the Romanians coming off a great World Cup. It it just it it really was exciting to watch and they. They were all absolutely fantastic players. You had obviously Nick Barnby as pretty much a youngster at that point coming through and he was doing his bits up top as well. And there was just quality all over that top line. And, you know, they just, there was no, it's not even as if the defence was bad, you know, the defence was non-existent. Pretty much. (laughs) No, it was there. They just had no protection. It was was so exposed, you know. I, I like to, it's funny to think, you know, because Sol Campbell start, first starts getting the minute in this season. The season he breaks through, isn't it? Yeah. Was this the, was this the season where it, it came, it started to come out, he, he, he was on £250 a week and everyone was laughing at him? 
<laughs> I don't know, but he um he he kind of played right back when he was first kind of breaking through. But you know, it's funny to think like how much this must have taught him as a young player, <laughs> like yeah. playing with no no midfielders. But yeah, I think that was the thing is that is essentially there was no midfield. You, you had sort of you know Popescu wandering all over the place. You know, Barmby playing as a very advanced ten. Uh, and sometimes just, you know, actually just right up alongside Sheringham and Klinsman. And then you'd have a kind of like a David Howes or a Steve Sedgley just kind of stood stood around by themselves, like patrolling the middle of the pitch. It's like a lollipop lady. Yeah. <laughs> Which go is, on. I think you can get away with that if you're like, I mean, if you have Kante there, maybe, like maybe you get away with that. I don't even uh, think Kante is, would have saved that as the one man midfield. Uh, do you know what? The, I, I guess it's not dissimilar to... To the Gal- the early Galacticos, right? Not like the later, of the, yeah, like the the sort of two thousand two thousand and one ish Galacticos, right? Because that was literally just Macaulay like wandering around by himself, uh, you know, sort of um, you know putting out fires. But Spanish football's much slower, isn't it? And and I think probably it's a lot easier then to get people back to join him. The Premier League at that time was so fast paced, wasn't it? So, so yeah, I think that was the main issue is just that there was there wasn't a sort of a functional midfield in front of that back four. It's not the best back four I've seen as a Spurs fan, but it it wasn't the worst either. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the results from from that period of time until Aussie gets sacked on the first of November, you know, it's like four three to open the season, the two one at Everton where you get the Clemson bicycle kick, lost one 0 against United, which at that time, I mean, ninety four vintage United. I mean, that's a, that's a good result, isn't it? Even that kind of um, situation where you've got Howells or, or Sedgley or whoever kind of stood on their own. I mean, that's a slightly later things aren't working out compromise. If you look at the <laughs> you look at the team sheets for the first couple of games where we go on this kind of big role that you just talked about there, and that Sheffield Wednesday game, it's really memorable. It is literally five defenders and five attackers. There is no midfielder in there that's kind of doing doing that role. It looks almost like a kind of well, I'll just read it out. It's Colin Calderwood, Sol Campbell, David Kerslake, Stuart Nethercott, just in Edinburgh. And then Darren Anderton, Nick Barmby, Lee Dimitrescu, Jürgen Klinsmann and Teddy Sheringham. There is no guy to put his foot in. And obviously one of the things that Jerry Francis will do, which we'll get on to in a bit, is actually just bring in Howells and make him a mainstay. And I don't know that a player that's kind of turned a season around so much has ever been so kind of, I don't know what the word is, mundane, if you like, as David Howells. But there we are. Uh, David Howells is 100% one of my favourite Spurs footballers ever. Um, and, he scored, and, and he scored in the first the first Spurs game I saw live in, oh, I don't know, 1990 or something. Oh, well, they're going to have a certain affection from just for that alone, I would have thought. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but he was he was uh, he was an unsung hero of the club for, uh, mm. you know. That's kind of what I was driving club. at, because you, know? yeah. you don't think of him immediately as one of the superstars of the team. But actually, just having somebody in there to be an anchor was one of the things that allowed Francis to turn, yeah. to, turn it. I think that Wednesday game, if I remember rightly, Nethercott played in midfield, <laughs> but um, but I could be wrong. But yeah, I think I think it, nominally it was Nethercott and Barnby in midfield, but as we know that, I mean Barnby would Barnby would play properly in midfield later in his career, but at this point, like he actually broke through for us as a nine, and the season before when he he starts getting you know really significant minutes, he's kind of playing up top with Sheringham. So it's certainly, yeah, certainly a um, bit of a mad lineup that. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a, a 100% a striker in his in his early days, wasn't he? And he did 
dropped back a little bit. But you know, even even in his later days, you would you wouldn't call him a he was an advanced date at best, wasn't he? Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I remember in the previous season we spoke about Bambi at Middlesbrough, and one of the things that came up was you guys being a little bit older, you had a slightly different take on Bambi to me because I, I got the impression that before I started watching football and what and paying quite as much attention to some of the other teams, there seemed to be the sense that Barmby could have gone on to be something really, really special and maybe he didn't quite ever make that. But I guess at this point, that would have been the time where people were talking about him in, the, in those terms as maybe yeah. being a future England star. Well, he this, was, is, this is where he, he, you know, this is probably the start of it. I, I wouldn't say downfall because he still had a, a very good career, I'd say. But, you know, he he was here at a point and suddenly... He's competed, well, not really competing, but he's played up front with Klinsman and Dimitrescu all of a sudden. He, he's looking, really, before that, at, at forming a partnership with Sheringham, which, as much as I dislike Teddy, should I say, um, there's a lot of great strikers that have formed partnerships with Teddy Sheringham over the years. And, you know, he was on that track and he became one of three partners for Teddy Sheridan that season rather than one so you know it's it's understandable but you know he 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 was always a very good player I don't think he ever was but yeah he he what he was being talked about as a international prospect rather than just a good Premier League forward I remember he was the kind of player that people talked about his games I actually saw him play for England schoolboys funny enough like um my, my school did a um, a school trip to the England schoolboys game every um, every year. It was like sort of, yeah, it was like kind of February, March time every year, like around about the time of the FA Cup fifth round, I think. And um, and basically, like, you know, I saw Ryan Giggs play. <laughs> he was still Ryan Wilson playing for England. You know, I saw Michael Owen play one of those, saw Paul Skulls playing one of those. Uh, and and Barnby, I think, was in the same team as Giggs, I want to say if I've got my timelines right. And he was the kind of player that people were talking about a lot. And, and obviously Spurs went, had to work quite hard to get him because he wasn't obviously a local boy, right? He was obviously from from Hull. So it was quite a big deal to get him. And yeah, he he looked like he was going to be, you know, even, an even better player than he, than he ended up being. Now, he didn't have to leave Spurs in 95 the the reason why he left or said he left because he was homesick for the north and i remember at the time match magazine and shoot magazine which by then had actually got quite a good line in kind of comedy banter actually given that they were nominally kids mags they did a lot of jokes about you know barnby missing chips and gravy and stuff like that so having to go back to borough so I guess he invested in that Brian Robson project, didn't he? And he was kind of like, well, I can be a main man there. I, I'm homesick, et cetera, et cetera. It is a shame because he, he was a, a, a very good player for Spurs. And I think because Klinsman left at the end of that season, had he stuck around, I'd much rather have had Sheringham Barnby than Sheringham and Chris Armstrong. I mean, I have nothing good to say about Chris Armstrong. So, yeah, he, he could have been, I think... Uh, even better than he ended up being. I think the, the the comparison I would make of early Nick Barnby would be, you know, what Beardsley was in, in those early seasons that went, you know, when he was at Newcastle before he went to Liverpool. He, he was that kind of a player. And 
unfortunately was never didn't turn out to have quite the career that Peter Beardsley has. Just not to, many do. <laughs> no, that's true. Just to cycle back to what we said about Klinsman then, because just kind of glossed over it a bit at the time, but I think it's really worth bringing out about how box office he was. I'm going to go on a limb and you can maybe kind of argue with me if you like. For me, there may have been better ones. There may have been more expensive ones, but this signing of Klinsman is the biggest import into the Premier League from abroad. I look at it and I think, how many times have we actually had a superstar of a World Cup winning team at the height of his powers coming into the league. It actually, even now, it's happened less often than you might think it has. If you start going back through, it just doesn't happen all that often for whatever reason. And not only did it happen here, but it went to a team that had been struggling and only just survived relegation with a couple of games left to go in the previous year, joined for a relatively small amount of money, 2.2 million, something in that kind of ballpark. And within a couple of weeks, not only had he come in as public enemy number one, he basically won over most of the British press within a matter of weeks. And he, not on his own single-handedly, I know, but he was the driving force in literally doubling the value of Tottenham Hotspur in a matter of like six weeks' time. It, that's ludicrous. I can't think of a player that's had that much impact on a club and the league that has been brought into into our, our, our division. Like I mean... I always tell me if you think I'm wrong, but that's that's my kind of hill that I'll I'll down there. That Klinsman is probably the most important and biggest import that we've had. Yeah, you're probably right at that point. Yeah, certainly at that point. Yeah, one hundred percent. And you're probably right in the sense that people that kind of became very iconic Premier League players, like Zola, for example. You know, when Zola was bought from Palmer, you know, he wasn't the first Italian ten that you thought of thought of Baggio first didn't you or you thought of you know there are other players you know around that you know as amazing as Zola ends up being Um, you're right though it was Baggio definitely that you thought of uh, and he was Zola was out of favour at Parma like Ancelotti wasn't putting him in the team that's why he went he wouldn't have gone to Chelsea had he you know not been dropped at Parma so, Bergkamp as well, you know, he, and he wasn't was setting the world alight at Inter, was he? He was struggling. And, you know, so from that point of view, I would say probably the, the one thing I'd say about Klinsman is the reason why we were able to get him is because, you know, he was turning 30. And for a striker in 1994, 30 was old. <laughs> you know, I know like we're used to Ronaldo and, you know, playing at 36, 37 now and, and it feels completely normal that, that he's still this absolute machine. But, you know, it was a bit of a novelty, really, to have international strikers sort of over the age of 30 at that point. So, you know, we were able to get him because he was available and because I guess he just got sold on, on the project. I think what's really interesting about Klinsman is that you have the caricature from the 90 World Cup, right? where he was almost cast as this sort of opposite of Gary Lineker. You know, Gary Lineker, the, you know, the doyen of fair play, although he dived to get two penalties against Cameroon. So, you know, make of that what you will. <laughs> and then you've got Klinsman, who in that World Cup was, you know, him and Voller were, were, were both seen as being, um, you know, fairly dishonest footballers, albeit brilliant footballers. So when he actually came over... And people actually saw his personality. Like, this is a guy that speaks perfect English. 
drove a Volkswagen Beetle around London when all these other footballers are driving, you know, flash cars, you know, lived in the city, walked around, talked to people, you know, had time for everybody, gave really good post-match interviews. It was difficult for anyone that wasn't an Arsenal fan not to fall in love with him, really, because the guy was just not only a brilliant footballer, but seemed like a good bloke. And I think that was the key to it, really. And obviously the the sense of humour with the dive celebration, the iconic dive celebration in that Wednesday game when he scored that that bullet header, it's etched indelibly on the history of the Premier League in a way that few other celebrations are. You know, you think of Gerard running to the camera or, you know, or the Aguero moment. You know, there are others, aren't there? Adebayor sprinting the length of the pitch to slide in front of the Arsenal fans. Um, Robbie Fowler <laughs> sniffing the line. Yeah, sniffing the, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But but there but those moments like that you just remember them, right? And I and I think that celebration's copied now by people that, that wouldn't even know where it came from. Like that's the kind of influence that it's had. So yeah, Clinton has an enormous influence really. I remember being incredibly jealous, mind you, when Arsenal did sign Bergkamp because he was a player that um, that I'd always admired, and um, and you kind of just knew that even if he was even if he was kind of a bit slow to get going in an Arsenal shirt, like once he did, he wouldn't stop, and um, and so it came to be. But yeah, certainly to that point, Klinsman was. Um, I mean, just to touch on that celebration very briefly, because. It literally got mentioned yesterday in a in a chat with one of my mates, the time that Mazza did a Klinsman when we, we walked to the shop, <laughs> uh, had a packet of crisps and fell over, tripped, yet did a Klinsman slide to save my crisps and hold them up. And it's known <laughs> as the time that Mazza did the Klinsman. The only time you've ever paid tribute to a Spurs player, I bet. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so... Klinsman comes in and Dimitrescu comes in as one. Well. We shouldn't downplay the interest there was in him coming in because it's it's the, the signing of them both and Popescu a little while later on that really turns the the mood at Spurs around and gets people interested in him. And we start with this these two wins on the bounce, the 4-3 away at Sheffield Wednesday and then the win against Everton, which I guess the way things are going to go for Mike Walker at Everton turns out to be a less good result than, than we maybe thought it was at first. Soon, though, things start to... To turn after the Ipswich game, you'd think the results start to go rather differently. Uh, you mentioned the the Leicester game where you concede three goals. I think Matt Letizia scores twice to beat Tottenham at home and losing to Southampton back then wasn't the best result in the world on, on paper. Worryingly, the amount of goals that they're shipping against Watford, who were, I think, second tier at the time. Uh, and then they get battered by by Nottingham Forest as well. So the, you start to see this is probably why, as romantic as this side was, people weren't going back to it. The, the sheer number of goals that they're shipping immediately is troubling, especially the ones against low league opposition. And I forget which which part of it it was. I think it's probably the losing to Man City, then following that up with the defeat at Notts County that probably is when Ardiles really lost his job, regardless of when the axe actually fell. It was interesting watching the game, some of the highlights back, because they start talking about Ardiles being under pressure right around the time of the Leicester game, actually, which is which is still really, really early. I remember that Leicester performance being, like, incredibly abject, actually. 
because Leicester had zero points, I think, when they played us um, and looked like they would be going. Is that the season they got promoted? Uh, so they've just got promoted back up. Uh, Brian Little is their yeah. uh, manager, but he's just about to leave for Villa. So it's the one where they get promoted and go straight back down with. Yeah, that's I wanna, what I, I want to say Mark McGee it, it takes over the second half of the season. Yeah, that's the one. And I remember them being a really poor side, actually. You know, uh, I looked sort of, you know, watching, uh, I watched some pretty extended highlights of that game. Jochim plus 10. They've got like Jochim and then like apparently Franz Carr was still playing in 1994, which I was <laughs> stunned by that. I mean, I remember watching well, this will, Sorry, this will stun you then because we signed him from Leicester after this. <laughs> like, I was like stunned. I was like, I remember watching him playing for Forest like 1988 or something. Like I was, yeah, I, I couldn't believe that anyway. Um, so it wasn't like a side that was blessed with quality and like they absolutely turned us over and two of the goals were just defensively abject you know there's one you know they just they just basically let us to play one twos around them and you know uh, the lad Howe like smashed it in the top corner after coming on as a sub um, and actually that was a really poor performance and then they followed that up with the Forest game losing 4-1 and the Wimbledon one, I remember I remember at the time the talk was if they if if we didn't win against Wimbledon, then Aussie was gone. And I think he got more rope than a lot of managers would have done because he was a club legend, you know, and, and the fact that we almost went down the season before, I've never quite known anything like this, and almost no one minded. Or at least that's my recollection. I mean, and I was only thirteen, but I do remember that sort of in 93, 94, people just like, there wasn't this sort of restive mood about how bad the team was. It was kind of like, oh, well, you know, in Aussie, we trust. Not that that was a phrase back then, but 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 you see what I mean. And and so everyone desperately did want Aussie to turn it around. And I remember listening to 606 quite a lot, quite a lot around this time, as I guess most people did on a Saturday evening back then. And all the phone-ins from Spurs fans were kind of like, oh, it's not good, but it's Aussie. Do I, do I want to see him be sacked? Because it feels like, you know, it feels like shooting a puppy, wouldn't it? You know, sacking Aussie Ardiles. <laughs> so, because you, you shouldn't underestimate what Aussie Ardiles means to that club. Because for all of the Premier League and, you know, imports into Premier League, like Aussie Ardiles is a World Cup winning midfield player to get him in like 1978 was like that was an unbelievable coup that kind of stuff just didn't happen and for him to go on and South Americans didn't come to the first division absolutely it's the audacity of it was absolutely insane um I know Ipswich at the same time got their Dutchman didn't they got like Muren and stuff but so there was a kind of mini foreign invasion after that World Cup but um he meant so much to that club not just because he was brilliant, a brilliant footballer, Aussie, a brilliant footballer. I mean, him and Hoddle in midfield can ask for nothing better. But but also because the way he embraced England and his kind of, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff around the, the cup final songs and, you know, and his accent and everything else. Like the guy was just an icon around the place. And he still is. He's still a match day host at, at Spurs to this day, you know, showing people around and. And, and doing the um, hospitality stuff. So what a um, what a great guy. And so people really wanted him to succeed. And they did beat Wimbledon. And then, yeah, I mean, curiously, what happens then? I remember this quite vividly. Is he 
he tries to dial it back. Yeah. And you get these sort of one-all draws against QPR and Leeds. And one of them, he drops Sheringham. I'm trying to watch which game it is, but he, he has to leave out a forward to try and get a bit of stability. And he leaves out Sheringham and Sheringham comes off the bench and basically saves the day. I'm trying to remember which game it was. I think it was the West Ham game. Yeah. So Sheringham comes off the bench. He scores and sets one up for Barmy, basically. Hmm. Um, and, and that's quite interesting as well, because it's like he, he sort of drops the wrong player, really, because Sheringham's the captain. And I remember thinking then kind of like, oh, I think the writing might be on on the wall here. And then, of course, they go and um, lose to Notts County in the League Cup 3-0, which is pretty grim. And it was another one of these games like the Leicester one where you know, not, they were good value for the nil, I think is the kind way of putting it. The Sheringham thing, I, I read it was part of, you know, he'd been the first striker to kind of lose form. And so he was the the obvious person to leave out in a sense. But they, there was almost a kind of sense of overreaction to it because, like you say, the, he dialed it back and they started going for these one-alls. There's talk of actually selling Sheringham around this kind of time. There's all sorts of other stuff going on. I remember some of the... One of the reasons why it's hard to know exactly what kind of shape they're playing is that our dealers was trying to fix it and move things around and put players in. And, and so you get these different formations. And I remember one of the best things I read when doing some research for this was this line of um, Popescu looks hopeless if you try and play him anywhere but a sweeper. And they can't afford to play a sweeper because what it does to the rest of the team. So he's just another passenger along with some of these other attacking players. So you end up with this really unbalanced uh, side he doesn't seem to know quite how to to solve it and I think as you say the, you do get this this situation where Sheringham comes off the bench and saves him against West Ham but I think the die is already cast there so so Ardiles is is sacked after a win as, as so often is the case uh, someone actually picks up some points in their last game but the decision's already basically been taken and we go into this period where there's a bit of debate in the press about who's actually going to be coming in to to take over i mean glenn hoddle's name gets mentioned but he's obviously committed to the the chelsea project at this point uh this talk of david cleet coming back in and um in a a new role but one of the things i found interesting was the talk that sugar went to Klinsman, and because Klinsman is there and he's such an important figure there's this talk a few years before everybody would start doing it about maybe going to a really European director of football kind of model. Now that doesn't happen because obviously we know they they bring in Jerry Francis, but it's really interesting to think about how things could have played out differently there. I think they did. There was talk of actually of making Clinton player manager. Um, he felt he was well. He did, he felt at that point he wasn't interested in management um, because I mean actually when he takes the Germany job years later, um, he was complete novice. And he just relied on Yogi Love to do all the tactics. And he just did the motivational stuff. <laughs> so um, I, I, it's interesting. Jerry Francis was, I think, everyone's number one choice. He's done a really good job at QPR. He was a former player. And he was kind of... Jerry Francis' stock was really high because that was a really good QPR team, you know, with Ferdinand and, um, and Sinclair. And they were playing really good football, really attacking, squash, you know, uh, swashbuckling football. You know, that QPR team, I think we've got them slated for an episode, have we not, at some point? Oh, yeah, somewhere. We've definitely if, written if, if we haven't, we should. Cause that we've was definitely the, written the name down somewhere, <laughs> that, haven't we? That was, the, that was an excellent team. But, yeah, he was everyone's first choice, I think, actually. And when he comes in, you know, he does have a kind of immediate stabilising effect. And um, it ends up being, after all of that, you know, up and down results and 
you know, we obviously get the points deduction quashed in the um, <laughs> quashed in the courts. So that goes away. And it ends up being, Venables aside, our best season of the 90s, you'd probably say. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a good shout. If you look at once Venables is kind of out the door, Tottenham are basically a lower half side for most of the night 90s this is the one oh, season where they, i remember yeah <laughs> i mean obviously if anyone's listening to this who's a more recent fan they won't be aware of this because it's been a couple of years since you've had to see any of the kind of saint totteringham's posts or anything like that that used to be every we year didn't even, we didn't even well we didn't easy yeah we didn't use the need those because it was we October. weren't no comparison to Arsenal whatsoever yeah. in all of that time. Like the best we could hope for was get drawn against them in the FA Cup and beat them in the FA Cup. And that we did fairly regularly. League game, forget about it. So, so, so I think, you know, we were a cup team, right? And, and the identity of Spurs really from, apart from, you know, that brief time, there's one, I think one season under under Birkenshaw and one season under Pleat where they actually go pretty close league-wise. They finish sort of top three. But really in my time as a sort of aware fan, you know, the league was kind of, you didn't even think about it really. You, you were happy with top half and a cup run. And that was the identity of the team. Play nice football, do well in a cup. Um, and you know what? What this team says to me in a lot of ways is that the modern obsession with winning things is everything that's wrong with football really because for all of this stuff about like you know Spurs and trophies and Harry Kane and trophies and all that stuff which gets banded about like endlessly and I I guess it's fair to the point of view that that we've been a you know I guess you could say we're, we're we're part of the of a big six in the last you know decade or so so I suppose like the conversation around winning things, I suppose, has to happen. But you don't need to win things to be a memorable football team. And this team is memorable not because they won anything. You can come close to winning anything. But you'd remember them over almost any other team in the league that season. Mm. Um, and really, that's what matters when it comes to football is do you remember the team? So just to come back and I'm going to tie into some of the stuff you were saying there because we could go through the, the rest of the league, you know, really kind of closely. But the, the basic story is that you lose to Villa in Francis's first game where some of the old habits die hard and you end up conceding four with the, you know, when you should have seen it out for at least a point, you end up losing in, in the last minute. But then after that, the new regime starts to kick in. He's had a bit longer to work with the team. You go on this unbeaten run. I think it's about 10 games where you don't lose. But the bigger thing is that not only did the points get quashed and you got your six points back, but Tottenham were allowed back into the FA Cup in the middle of December at the same time when the uh, the arbitration ruled in their favour. So all of a sudden, from Tottenham being in the relegation battle and out of both cups, essentially, now they were allowed to take part in the FA Cup. And, you know, Tottenham's history, the FA Cup's well documented. They go on this big run through it and people start to get really intrigued at the idea of can Tottenham, this you know wonderful team with this wonderful talisman up front, go all the way. They've made a few changes. It's not quite the same marauding, ambitious looking team. You know, Dumitrescu is eventually the man who has to make way in order to, to find a bit more stability because for all his talent, he had no defensive proclivities whatsoever. I think uh, he, also, he also got quite homesick. 
his form dropped off fairly quickly. He was quite a lightweight player as well, and 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 um, you know, I think he found the physicality at times quite difficult. Uh, I remember the phone in actually when Francis first first took over, and again, I think I always remember this from six oh six. Somebody phoned up who'd been to the game, and he said, "Look, you look down the pitch, and you could see what he was doing. It was four four two. So yeah, Barnby kind of drifted out and kind of became nominally the kind of left midfield player, Ants on the right, Popescu and Howes in the middle, Klinsman and Sharing up front, you know, and then the back four, you know, you had Cole to Woods. You know, you still have Mabbott in there as the, you know, as the kind of, uh, of the, as the stalwarts. And you're seeing more and more of of Sol Campbell at right back. And Edinburgh was like a fixture at left back. So it, it got quite, yeah, it got quite stable quite quickly. Quite interesting. Stephen Carr starting to appear on the bench at this time as well. Another another absolute legend of the, of the club. Um, so you're starting to see some, some interesting things which will be happening in the future there as well but yeah he stabilized things and um you know that was a uh a, a really good end to the season the quarter final against liverpool is one of my favorite games actually thrilling game we uh i think we went one nil down in that game and then sharing and Klinsman just like came roaring back and uh it was very, very satisfying because many of my close friends were Liverpool fans. So I enjoyed that one a lot. Sadly, we then got battered by uh, Joe Royals Everton. Kind of, that was the Dogs of War's uh, probably most notable performance, I'd say. That and the final against Man United. Yeah. But I think people were, I do remember it. There was a certain, not that people had a problem with Everton per se, but people were wanting the the two glamour sides to play each other, you know, the Tottenham obviously with that kind of reputation and this, you know, this lineup and, and Man United being the all conquering Man United of the 1990s. There was a lot of appetite, particularly in the media, I think, for that kind of showpiece final. Yeah, it was a classic. We just didn't show up. Mm. Um, I think it was 2-1 going into the final stages and then and then we just kind of like gave up and Amakachi scored twice and then it was kind of that was it really. But it, it was very, I remember that was one of, the lowest I felt after a cup game, I think, actually. Like, I felt lower after that than I did after the Champions League final. <laughs> such, is, uh, such is fandom, I suppose. But yeah, I remember that one. And I think 93, semi against Arsenal. Like, those two, I remember being, feeling really, really low after those two. Because they were both games that were, like, really winnable that they just didn't show up for. And it seemed to be kind of the end of the season in many ways because things just sort of petered out from there didn't they I, mean, I don't recall there being too many more good days after that they sort of tended to draw more than lose they were still quite a tough team to beat but there was only a couple more wins left in the season and they did get turned over by the likes of Coventry who were not not a brilliant side most years uh, so yeah it's almost like this this wonderful season where there was such a really memorable side kind of ends with a bit of a whimper and I, I guess the kind of punchline on that is Klinsman does leave after one year rather than seeing out the two-year contract and the whole thing kind of ends. Is there a sense, I suppose, just to finish this off, um, about missed opportunities, maybe? Maybe this didn't get seen through to the, to the end, or is it one of those things you just have to be grateful for the year that it was? I'm grateful for the year that it was. I mean, I think the thing is, is that um, if you look at the, t- the table that year, the team that finished just above us is Newcastle, and we all know what happens in 95-96. And, and Leeds, obviously, you know, they were kind of 
you know, they still had uh, a bit of the spine of the team that had won the last, the old first division. So it's interesting to think about those those teams that that, that kind of were above us, and I guess those bad results under um, under our dealers kind of uh, precluded us being all that much higher. So yeah, Liverpool were fourth, Forest were third under Frank Clark. Um, and of course, United were second to Blackburn that season. So in terms of, of what happened next, I think Jerry Francis did a really, you know, did a really good job um, as, as Spurs manager, all in all. And actually, I don't think he should have been sacked when he was, you know, like for, for Francis to be sacked in 97, 98 and for us to end up with Christian Gross was like, well, a gross miscarriage of justice, shall we say. But, you know, seventh, eighth, in his first two seasons, like, you know, that's pretty, uh, pretty good as, as um, Spurs League's finishes went at the time. I guess I, I wish that we could have had a bit more around Teddy while Teddy was in his prime, because because he was going into year 96 by by the next season when he's obviously, you know, he has that incredible purple patch with England. And had we had a bit more around Teddy, I think we could have been challenging for the top four. Not that you got into the Champions League for that back then. But yeah, so I don't think missed opportunity is quite the right word. It obviously descends into farce a little bit because of, you know, that whole Alan Sugar interview and him saying he wouldn't wash his car with Jürgen Klinsmann's shirt and going on that mad rant about Carlos kicker balls and stuff. Um, oh, that was one of my favourite <laughs> moments of the 90s, without a doubt. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it, it kind of made the club a bit of a laughing stock. Um, as, as quite often it was under Sugar, because he was basically uh, didn't always know what the hell was going on. So, yeah, I guess I'd say I, I, I'm grateful for that that season because it was um, a, a very memorable and fun season in the middle of a, a fairly kind of grey time period to be a supporter of the club. So, so yeah, I, I can always kind of say that I saw those five players play together and um, and, a, and a lot of fun it was too. Amaz, I guess your memories are going to be just of maybe probably the only time as a kid ever really looking on at Tottenham with a maybe a touch of envy, you know, seeing them actually outperforming Arsenal for once. Well, they always outperformed Arsenal in terms <laughs> well, of you know what I mean. <laughs> excitement. You know, I grew up in George Graham's era, not Arsene Wenger's. It's what you've always got to remember here. So, you know, I, I saw us play a lot of dire football, but, you know, usually nine times out of ten, a lot more effective. It, it was fun. They they were they were very good value for for money and a, a very very entertaining team. And yeah, I I, I never envied that. I I I always prefer winning. And we still yeah a couple of years had passed, but we were still sitting on uh, on our double cup victory and then our cup winners cup victory. So yeah, yeah you, you did look and wonder when's it our turn, and it soon would be. So. It didn't. It didn't last long, but yeah, that, they were they were a lot of fun to watch on match of the day. That's for sure. I know one of the things that I uh, had some envy was reading back, looking over it, and seeing just how interested Big Ron was in signing Klinsman. And ultimately, I think the reason we lost him is that he wanted to live in London, and you know he was motivated by things beyond the football as often as not and we just couldn't compete with that at the time so uh, yeah I just sometimes wonder what would have happened if Big Ron had managed to bring in Jürgen Klinsmann rather than John Fashionu but that's a, <laughs> that's a thought for another day isn't it it's, it's the thematic link between these first few episodes yeah 
Yeah, you didn't know there was a thread, did you? Uh, I think that's as good a place as me to wrap this one up with me crying over the image of what could have been. Uh, we will be back next week when we're going to be looking at Team Sheffield Wednesday from 92-93. If you're in two cup finals and you're a good side finishing the top half of the league, you might think you've got a decent chance of winning at least one, right? Maybe not. It's a bit of a heartbreaking season, but what a memorable team they were. And we'll be talking about them next time. Until then, take care. <laughs>